Coming up, a message from the pulpit of Bethel Primitive Baptist Church in Calabash, North Carolina, by Elder Michael Goins. For information about Bethel Church, please visit our website at BethelPBC.us. God willing, this morning I would like to continue with some of the thoughts that we began last Sunday in the 8th chapter of Hebrews concerning the new and better covenant that our Lord has given to his people. Last time we dealt with this passage in a general way, and we concluded by noticing that the new covenant, like the old, is a covenant of worship and service. That is a means by which we approach God right now in worship and service. But unlike the old, it is connected to the everlasting covenant or the covenant of grace, meaning that we can now worship and serve God on the basis of Christ's perfect redemption, not our own works of obedience. Arthur W. Pink calls the new covenant in his excellent book on the covenants, the messianic covenant, that is Christ's covenant. And today I want us to return to deal more specifically with the text here in Hebrews chapter 8. And I'll begin by reading verses 6 and then 10 to 12. Hebrews chapter 8 verse 6. But now hath Jesus Christ obtained a more excellent ministry, by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. Verse 9, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts. And I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. Notice the comparative adjectives in verse 6. Jesus Christ has obtained a more excellent ministry, more excellent. It says further, he is the mediator of a better covenant, better covenant. And this better covenant is established, he says, upon better promises. The first point I want to make this morning is we have a better covenant. Better than what you ask? Well, better than what the Jews had under the law. The gospel is better than the law. Or if I can say it like this, Christianity is superior to Judaism. Now, people don't like it when you start saying your religion is better than theirs. That is politically incorrect in the modern world, isn't it? Somebody says all religions are equally valid and every path is a path to God. That's not true, dear friends. Just because the Constitution gives us the right to cultivate a pluralistic society doesn't mean that all ideas are equally valid. There's one truth. And even Jesus said to the Samaritan woman, that his religion was better than hers. Remember John 4.22, he says, salvation is of the Jews. The Jewish religion was better than the Samaritan religion. When he says salvation is of the Jews, 
He's not claiming ethnic superiority. He's not saying we are better than you as a people. But he's claiming religious superiority, that the Jewish religion was more accurate than the religion of the Samaritans. And we can say today, based on this passage in the book of Hebrews, that Christianity is superior to Judaism. Even though that's politically incorrect, we have a better covenant. And it's better in at least five ways. Let's list them this morning. First, it's better because even the prophets under the old system spoke of a coming covenant that would be superior to what they presently had. If their prophets under the law said there's coming a day when we will have a better covenant, it's something that was predicted back in the Old Testament period, then that is an argument to say that what we have today is better. Ezekiel 34, verse 23. And I will set up one shepherd over them, God says, and he shall feed them, even my servant David. Now this is future language, right? I will set up one shepherd. And he says, and he shall feed them, even my servant David. Now interestingly, David, by the time Ezekiel wrote this, he's been dead at least 300 years. Maybe closer to 400 years, David has been dead. And God says, I will set up another shepherd over my people, even my servant David. Do you believe that he's talking about David's reincarnation here? Or is he talking about David's greater son, the Messianic David, David's Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ? I suggest that this is a reference to Christ. He shall feed them and he shall be their shepherd. Watch this. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David, a prince among them, I, the Lord, have spoken it. And I will make with them a covenant of peace. And will cause the evil beasts to cease out of the land, and they shall dwell safely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. And I will make them in the places round about my hill a blessing. And I will cause the shower to come down in his season. There shall be showers of blessing. That's pleasant language, isn't it? It sounds delightful. God describes a scene of peace and of prosperity and of refreshment. Showers of blessing. He promises. You say, Brother Mike, what's he talking about? That I'm going to bring David to sit on the throne and he will shepherd the people and there will be a time of peace and prosperity. What's he talking about? He's talking about the new covenant or the gospel age. Now turn forward two chapters in Ezekiel chapter 36 and listen to this passage beginning in verse 25. You see, the first argument I'm giving you this morning for why the new covenant is better than the old is because even the prophets under the old talked about what we have today. And this passage here in Ezekiel 36 is even clearer. Verse 25, then will I sprinkle clean water upon you and you shall be clean. Now God says, I will cleanse you. You shall be clean from all your filthiness and from all your idols will I cleanse you. A new heart also will I give you. And a new spirit will I put within you, and I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you shall keep my judgments and do them. And ye shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. Interestingly, that is the very passage referenced here in Hebrews chapter 8 when he says, that he will write his law in our hearts. He will 
put his truth into our minds, and we will be his people and he will be our God. And then, of course, the direct quotation here in Hebrews chapter 8 is taken from one further passage, Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 35. Would you listen to this now? Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Notice the language, new covenant. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Which covenant they break? Although I was a husband unto them, saith the Lord, but this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God, and they shall be my people, and they shall teach no more every man his neighbor, and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. That's the first reason the new covenant's better than the old. Even their prophets prophesied of something better to come. Secondly, we have a better covenant because what we have today is the reality, not a mere shadow. You'll notice in the fifth verse in Hebrews chapter 8, he says that the priests under the Old Testament serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things as Moses was admonished of God when he made the tabernacle. For see, saith he, that thou make all things according to the pattern shown thee in the mount. Notice he says that the old covenant was an example and a shadow. The word example is interesting. It means a sketch or an outline or a copy. Like a prototype, like an artist would sketch out a portrait or a picture before he actually or she actually develops and paints that picture. It's the rough draft. That's the word example. And then the word shadow is the Greek word skia, meaning a silhouette or a shadow. Now, here's something that every one of us knows about a shadow. A shadow really has no independent existence or substance of itself, right? It only exists because the reality that it resembles exists. Were the reality not there, there would be no shadow. A shadow does not stand on its own, in other words. When he calls the law a shadow, an example, a pattern, that is a prototype, an outline, a copy. It's not the real thing. It's just a type of the real thing that is to come. And that real thing that is to come is the true tabernacle, the true sanctuary, the true high priest, the new covenant that we have right now. Galatians chapter 3 verse 21 says it like this. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. The Old Testament was never intended to save sinners from their sins. It was only given to lead to the true Savior. The Old Testament, as he says in verse 24, was our schoolmaster. The law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, verily righteousness would have been by the law. But the law was not given to give life. It was not given to save us from our sins. It was given to bring sin to remembrance and to point to the one who could and would save us from our sins, the Lamb of God. You see, every little four-legged lamb prefigured, pointed toward the Lamb of God, the real Lamb. The law was a shadow. It was a copy. It was a sketch. It was a shadow that pointed to the reality. Thirdly, 
What we have today is better because not only did their prophets talk about a future time of blessedness, and not only was that a copy and a shadow and now we have the real thing, but our covenant, the new covenant or the messianic covenant that he talks about in our text is a covenant of divine grace, not of human works. Interestingly, and this may get too technical, I don't want to go into great detail here, but the Greek word for covenant in our text is the word diateke. But that's not the usual or ordinary word for covenants in the Bible. Covenants between people in the Bible, like a marriage covenant in which two people are united in the bonds of holy matrimony or a business contract, that word is sunteke, which is the ordinary word for covenants between people. Sunteke speaks of people who are on an equal level. But this is a different word. Diateke is a word that is used primarily for wills. You've heard the expression, the last will and testament of Michael Goins. Here is the last will and testament. What is a will? Well, it is the arrangement by which you have decreed the distribution of your assets, of your estate, the probation of your estate to your heirs. That's a will. And that's the word that is used here in Hebrews chapter 8 when he says a new covenant it's not a word that speaks of people who are on an equal level, but it's the word that is primarily used for wills. And the point is that God and man never enter into covenants on equal terms. A will is not made on equal terms, is it? A will is a pure act of grace. If you are the beneficiary of someone's will, if you are the heir to someone's estate, you did nothing to receive that inheritance. It is solely at the discretion of the testator, of the one who made the will, to distribute his or her estate as he sees fit. It's a sovereign act. That's the word that is used here. The new covenant is not a covenant by people on equal terms. It's not that God has done his part and now he wants you equally to do your part in order to secure salvation. But my friends, this is a pure act of divine grace from start to finish, and there's no room for negotiation of the last will and testament of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thirdly, I would say that the covenant we have, the new covenant, is a better covenant because it has a broader scope than the old covenant. It's made with spiritual Israel, those chosen in Christ in the everlasting covenant, not with national Israel. The word Israel in Scripture is often used to refer to a mystical seed or what old preachers call spiritual Israel. For instance, listen to a few verses. Psalm 73 verse 1 says this, Truly God is good to Israel, watch this, even to such as are of a clean heart. Now that last qualifying expression suggests that the Israel he's describing is not merely the national seed of Abraham. He's talking about people whose hearts have been changed, whose hearts have been made clean. Truly God is good to Israel, not just the natural Jew, but even to such. That is, this is an explanatory phrase, Ezra of a clean heart. In John 1:47, Jesus sees Nathanael approaching him and he says, Behold an Israelite indeed, in whom is no guile. Notice how again he refers to something in, on the inside. He's not speaking simply of a genetic identity here. 
He's saying you're a true Jew because your heart has been cleansed from sin. Like Psalm 32.1 says, blessed is the man in whose spirit there is no guile. Here's a man who is a true Israelite. Now compare that to 1 Corinthians 10.18, where the Apostle Paul says, Behold Israel after the flesh. Are they not which eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? Now, why would he identify them by this qualifying phrase, Israel after the flesh? And the answer is to distinguish them from Israel after the spirit. You see, there are natural Jews, but every natural Jew is not necessarily a spiritual Jew. And that's the point that Paul makes in Romans 9, 6, when he says, for they are not all Israel, which are of Israel. You say, Brother Mike, I've, I don't understand that. What that means, as he goes on to explain, neither because they're the seed of Abraham are they all children, but in Isaac shall thy seed be called, that just because a person is a natural Jew descending from Abraham does not mean that they're a true child of God. Salvation is by grace, not by race. Just because a person is a natural Jew does not mean that he's a child of God or she's a child of God. In fact, Jesus told some Jews in John chapter 8, you're of your father, the devil. They weren't God's children, and the lust of your father you will do. And the reason is because the true Israelite, according to the New Testament explanation, the true Israelite is the Israel of God who is a new creature. Listen to Galatians 6.16. As many as walk according to this rule. Now he's just talked about the new creature in the previous verse in which there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither bond nor free. There's neither male nor female. That is, there are no distinctions in this new covenant. It's not a matter of your ethnicity. It's not a matter of your gender. It's not a matter of your social circumstances. He says, but you're all one in Christ Jesus. And he says, for as many as walk according to this rule, those who live according to the rule of the new creature in Christ, peace be upon them and mercy upon the Israel of God. Notice these expressions. There is an Israelite according to the Spirit. There is an Israelite indeed in whose spirit there is no guile. There's an Israel who is of a clean heart. And there's an Israel in the Bible who is not necessarily a natural Jew, but they're the Israel of God because they're new creatures. And I think we could summarize it all in Romans 2.29 when the Apostle Paul says very plainly, He is not a Jew which is one outwardly. Neither is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew which is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the Spirit, not in the letter, but in the Spirit of the Lord. He says the true Jew is a person who's been born from above, in whose heart God has done a work of grace. Galatians chapter 3, verse 29 says it like this, And if you be Christ's, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the problem. Notice he didn't say if you're Abraham's seed, then you're Christ's. But he said if you're Christ's, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Verse 7 in this same chapter, Galatians 3 says, Know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. Now, when our passage then says, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, I suggest that he's speaking in spiritual terms of the covenant people of God, not national terms. The nation of Israel was, nationally speaking, the people of God in the Old Testament. But in the grander scheme, you see, that was just a picture, as a shadow of something better. In the grander scheme, the people of God 
consist of all of his elect that were chosen in Christ, whose names were written in the Lamb's Book of Life, who belong to Jesus Christ. The new covenant, in other words, includes the whole family of God, God's covenant people out of every nation, kindred, tongue, and people, and it is not limited to national Israel. Therefore, we have a better covenant because it's broader in scope. Then I would say it's a better covenant because it's an internal, not an external covenant. Verse 10 says it like this in our text. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord, I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts. And I will be to them a God and they shall be to me a people. I want to ask you a question. Is there a difference in having the law engraved inside of you and having it on tables of stone out here to read? You say, I have a poster on my wall, the Ten Commandments. I'm glad you have it. We've posted the Ten Commandments on a granite slab out in front of the county courthouse or in the courtroom. You know, there are many places where that has been the case in the past. And of course, the atheists and the skeptics are trying to take that down. They're trying to purge society of any reference of God's moral law. But is there a difference in having the law out there? You know, it's available. But there are many people who've never read it, who don't see it, who don't think about it, right? If it's out there, you have to go where it is to read it, to see it, to consider it. But what if it was on the inside of you? What if God's law was in your heart? You say, Brother Mike, that would be much easier because then it would be a part of me and I couldn't get away from it. And wherever I went, it would go with me. That's what he's saying in this verse. I will write my laws in their hearts and put them in their mind. That's why the new covenant is better than the old because it is based upon God's work of grace in the heart, not on something academic out here externally, but it's based on something internally. Now, this is a very important point. The new covenant deals with the heart and the conscience, not the conduct and the behavior. We're going to see this as we move into the ninth chapter in the ninth verse when he says that the law was a figure. There's another word that speaks of something shadowy, something like a copy. It was figurative. For the time then present, the law was never intended to be permanent. The law was given until Christ came, right? But it was never intended to be permanent. For the time then present, God gave them figures in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the, what? Conscience. See, the law could never get on the inside of you and alleviate the guilt in your conscience. Here's the good news, my friends. God deals with us not just in terms of our conduct and behavior, but he's concerned with what is on the inside of us. And the good news is that now under the new covenant and the ministry of the Holy Spirit, when the gospel is preached, the Lord can give you help in your conscience. He can give you peace in your heart. It's not just a matter of keeping the rules, checking the boxes. I'm a list maker. That's why I like calendars. You know what I use my calendar for? I write on it. If I have a doctor's appointment, I write it down. If I need to pay a bill, I write it down. And I, every day, if I can see that I've checked off my calendar and the list has been completed, then I am a happy man. I'm a list maker. 
Somebody says, I just keep mine up here. My up here is so discombobulated, I need to write it down. Because I will inevitably, invariably, forget to do something I needed to do. So uh, I have to write it down. I'm a list maker. You know, a lot of religious people are list makers. Okay, I need to read my Bible? Check. Need to pray? Check. Need to call somebody in need and try to minister to them? Check. I need to give my tithe to the church? Check. Need to be there for worship service to, you know, so the, the neighbors won't talk about me? Check. And uh, here's my list. Now, is it good to give to the church? Is it good to attend public worship? Is it good to minister? Absolutely. Is it good to read the word and to pray? Yes, indeed. But my friends, these things don't make us righteous. You may feel good about yourself because I've kept the rules, but I'm telling you, my friends, what God is interested in is your heart, not just your conduct, your behavior. And by the way, however good of a rule keeper you are, may I say none of us can possibly measure up and keep all the rules. The rich young ruler in the Gospels thought that he had kept it all. He said, all these things, he thumbed his lapels. I've kept them all from my youth up. I'm perfect. And Jesus says, one thing thou lackest. And I'm sure that was news to him. One thing thou lackest. Well, what did I leave out? He says, go and sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And thou shalt have treasure in heaven. And it says at this saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. The one thing he lacked is his heart was covetous. That lesson is not teaching us that the Lord requires his children to liquidate all of their personal assets and donate it all to charity. That lesson, my friends, is designed to teach us that the Lord is interested in heart righteousness as well as hand righteousness. It's not enough just to do the things God said if your heart is bad. That's why Jesus teaches that lust is the moral equivalent of the actual act of adultery. He that looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery in his heart. That's why he teaches that hatred of a brother without a cause is the moral equivalent of murder. You say, I've never murdered anybody, but have you ever hated your brother with, without a cause? First John chapter 3 says, Whoso hateth his brother without a cause is a murderer, because it's the same spirit of ill will and malice toward another person in the heart. You say, well, I never acted on it. That means that you won't have the same degree of punishment in this world. But my friends, as far as God's concerned, who can see your motives as well as your behavior, your conduct, as far as God's concerned, that desire, that internal attitude is enough to condemn the whole lot of us to eternal ruin. You see, here's the thing. When Jesus Christ came to this earth, he died not only for our misdeeds, but he died, my friends, to change our hearts and to cleanse us on the inside. That's why what he did on the cross legally and positionally must be applied by the Holy Spirit to every one of his people's heart in regeneration, in the new birth. What Jesus did on the cross, the blood he shed on the cross, my friends, is applied to you personally and vitally and individually when you are quickened from a death in trespasses and in sins to a life in Jesus Christ, God that did a work for you on paper, legally at the cross, does a work inside of you personally. That's what this verse is talking about. I will put my laws in their hearts and write them in their minds. And I'll be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. In the old covenant, the law was written on stone. Now it's written in the heart. A few verses right quickly. 
2 Corinthians 3.3, the apostle says, for you are manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ. Paul's right there. In your New Testament, you have the epistle of Paul. An epistle means a letter. When I was a kid, I used to think the epistles were the apostles' wives. <laughs> epistles aren't apostles' wives. Epistle means letter, right? You have the epistle of Paul to the Romans, the epistle of Paul to the Ephesians, the epistle of Peter to the 12 tribes, the epistles of John, the letters. These are New Testament books. Where is Christ's epistle? Paul, Peter, John, James, where's Christ's epistle? You say, it's not in there. I don't see it. Paul says, you, you and you and you and you are manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ. Christ has written his epistle in your hearts. He's changed and transformed the lives of individuals. And as they walk around, people are able to read the, about the power of God's transforming grace through Christ in your life. For you are manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not in tables of stone, but in the fleshy tables of the heart. My beloved, may I say, the Lord does more than just give you therapy and counsel and say, here's some homework. Now go home and try to help yourself and be a better person. The Lord actually does a work of grace on the inside of you that changes you from the inside out and that gives you the power and the ability and the resources necessary to be the kind of person you ought to be. You have something on the inside, and I do too if we've been born again, that makes you capable of living a godly life. So the new covenant is based on that. It's not simply concerned with behavior and conduct and checking the boxes, keeping the list, but it's concerned, my friends, with living out what God has worked in. I will put my laws in their hearts and write them in their minds. Here's another verse, Romans 2.14. For when the Gentiles which had not the law, okay, the Jews had the law, everybody else was a Gentile, all right? And they didn't have the codified law of God. They couldn't read the ceremonies and the civil rules and the uh, sacrificial system. They didn't have that. The Egyptians, the Babylonians, the people in different parts of Mesopotamia, they didn't have the law. But notice Paul says, for when the Gentiles which have not the law do by nature the things that are contained in the law, that's a strange thing. They don't know what to do, but yet they're doing it anyway. He says, they show the work of the law written in their hearts. In other words, they're doing what is right, not because they read it in a book somewhere on a tablet, but because it's written on the inside of them. They feel something inside of them that compels them to live moral and godly lives. They show by nature the work of the law written in their hearts, their thoughts, the meanwhile, either accusing or else excusing one another. That simply means that in their heart, they have a sense of right and wrong, and they either say what I did is correct and proper and right and good, and what he did is incorrect and improper, and he shouldn't be doing that. Heard a story about a preacher who used to play with his brother at, a, at honky-tonks, nightclubs, all sorts of activity going on in those dark places. He said, we had the biggest time, enjoyed it, loved it, 
parties every weekend. He said, and then one night we came home and about two o'clock in the morning and sat on the edge of the bed. He said, I just felt so filthy and vile and just was so ashamed of myself and just such a dark cloud hanging over my life. And he said, I looked at my brother and I said, you know, it's not fun anymore. He said, my brother looked at me, he said, to me either. He said, I couldn't explain what had happened, but something had changed on the inside of me. That, my beloved, is what God does to his people when he quickens them, when he writes his law in the heart. And only God can write it there. I can't write it in your heart. Parents can't write it in their children's heart. But I'm telling you, dear friends, if there is something on the inside of you that compels you to do right and that wants to learn more and that seeks to be godly, you say, well, there's something also on the inside of me that enjoys sin. Yeah, that's proof that you have two natures, the flesh and the spirit. And these are contrary, the one to the other. Right? You're in a battle. It's the fight of your life. Those two old dogs are at each other's throats and will be until your dying day, my friends. And may I say you need to feed the Spirit. Walk in the Spirit and you won't fulfill the lusts of the flesh, Galatians 5 says. But here's the thought. There's something on the inside of you that God has given. The new covenant is based on that work of grace in the heart. It's internal, not external. Therefore, Paul would say to the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 4.9, concerning brotherly love, brethren, you don't need for me to write to you. For you are taught of God to love one another. That's what verse 11 means in our text. They shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. It doesn't mean that we don't need to grow in our knowledge, but that initial teaching that changes a person from a lover of self and a lover of sin to a lover of God is a work of grace done by God and God alone. When he takes out this hard and stony heart out of the flesh and gives you a heart of flesh that is a heart that is capable of feeling, that's what happens, my beloved, in his work of grace. So the foundation of the new covenant is regeneration on the inside, not education on the outside. 1 John 2.27 similarly says, The anointing that you have received of him abideth in you, and you need not that any man teach you, but even as it is true, and it has taught you, you shall abide in him. There is something on the inside, my friends, that is given to you not by education. No man could have put it there, but it's the gift of God's grace. Therefore, this work of regeneration that is the basis of the new covenant is a work of God's grace and God's grace alone. As he says in this expression in verse 10, I will be to them a God and they shall be to me a people. I will, they shall. Now, when I conduct a wedding, I usually ask the gentleman, will you promise to take care of her and to be unselfish and to be committed to her and her alone? And he says, I will. And then I ask her, will you promise? And she says, I will. What if you had a wedding where the bride didn't show up and it was just the groom there? Could you have the wedding? You say, no, it takes two to tango. You've got to have both of them. What if she got sick or decided that she was going to run away? 
heard of the runaway bride, you know, okay, she runs away. And I don't blame her for doing that, knowing some of the men folk I've known in life, you know, but uh, what if she didn't show up? I said, well, we're going to go ahead and have the wedding. He says, I'll answer for me and I'll answer for her too. Will you? I will. Will she? She shall. You say, that's a one-sided covenant, Brother Mike. That's exactly right. God says, I will be their God and they shall be my people. So what if they don't want to be? They shall. What if they refuse to cooperate? They shall be his people. When he speaks, they come forth. They respond. Because the God who has committed himself in covenant commitment to them, who has vouchsafed himself and pledged himself forever, has assumed all of the obligations for fulfilling this covenant. As we close, this new and better covenant is established upon better promises. Every covenant has promises. Do you promise to be true to her? Do you promise to love, to cherish? Do you promise to live sacrificially? Every covenant has promises. May I say, the promises in this new covenant are better than anything you've ever read before under the law. Here's the threefold benefit of the new covenant. First, you have belonging and identity. Verse 10, I will be to them a God, they shall be to me a people in that language. When God says, I'll be yours and you'll be mine, we have the idea of identity, belonging. You know, the happiest blessing in my life is not the things that belong to me. If you were to ask me, what do you enjoy most about your life? I wouldn't say it's my car or my uh, recliner or my television or my computer or my dog, the things that belong to me. Do you know the thing that makes me the happiest in life is not the things that belong to me, but the people to whom I belong. I'm so glad I belong to this precious lady here and these two precious girls. I'm so glad to belong. I'm so thankful to belong to the church. That gives me identity. That gives me belonging. You know, God says, I will be your God and you will be my people. May I suggest, dear friends, the greatest belonging in the world is to belong to him and for him to belong to you. He is my God. Jesus Christ is my Savior. You say, well, he's mine too. That's wonderful. I'm glad that's true. But he's my Savior. I'm glad to own him, but I'm glad even more that he owns me. Right? I will be to them a God. They shall be my people. We have him. If you don't have anything else in this world and yet you have him, you're a blessed character. And he has us. God says, I will be your God and you shall be my people. Then secondly, the promise not only of belonging, but the promise of a relational knowledge of God. Not merely an academic knowledge of God when he says, they shall know the Lord. They all shall know me from the least to the greatest you say well what if somebody is not as their iq isn't as advanced maybe here's somebody that has an iq of 75 here's someone else that has an iq of 120. doesn't that limit a person's ability to enjoy this relationship with god no they shall all know me from the least to the greatest from the least socially and economically to the great from the poorest to the richest from the most underprivileged to the most elite and privileged person, from the most ignorant to the most intelligent, 
all of God's people will have the same relationship with Jesus Christ. From the littlest, smallest child to the oldest saint, they all shall know me. And that's the greatest blessing of all is to know God. Did you know that's eternal life? This is life eternal. John 17, 2, that they may know thee, the only true God. John 6, 44 says, they shall all be taught of God. All be taught of God teaches every one of his children to know him. And my friends, no person is closer to God than the next in the family of God. You say, well, I'm afraid I'm going to live on the other side of the tracks in heaven. You don't have to worry about that. You'll be on Main Street. You say, but I'm not that important. What if somebody has more crowns than me? I'm glad to tell you, dear friends, it's not a matter of the haves and the have-nots when you get to that world. That's what I've always rejected in that idea of people having more crowns, you know, do a few more works, you'll get more crowns. In other words, you mean they're still going to be the popular kids and the unpopular kids in heaven? <laughs> no. Praise God that our works down here do not add to the joy we will have over there. There won't be a main street and a back alley in heaven. Every one of God's children will have a mansion. In my father's house are many mansions. You say, well, I've lived in a single wide down here. You'll have a mansion over there. You'll be given the royal treatment. And there'll be no class structure in heaven. Isn't that good news? They shall all be taught of God and we'll know him, we'll have a relationship with him. Not just an academic knowledge, a relational, that's a better knowledge, isn't it, than an academic knowledge. And then I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Forgiveness of sins, that's the greatest benefit of all. These covenant benefits resolve both the problem of our natural ignorance and our sinful guilt in our conscience. For God says, I will remember their sins and iniquities against them no more. Do you know why God has forgotten your sins? Not because he's forgetful, but because Jesus has paid for them and put them away. As far as the east is from the west, and you will never encounter them or meet them again. Your sins and iniquities. You say, oh, Brother Mike, I'm such a vile sinner. God says, what sins are you talking about? Jesus Christ has already paid for them and I will not hold those sins against you. I will not bring them up. You don't have to worry about them anymore. Isn't that good news for guilty consciences? The new covenant is based on that promise of grace. Therefore, the old covenant, like a garment, is ready to be folded up and pass away, to vanish away, as verse 13 says, and we have a new and a better covenant which is established upon better promises. You're not in the gospel kingdom if you've not professed faith in Jesus Christ, but yet the Lord's done a work of grace in your heart. You ought to unite yourself with the people who worship and serve God on the basis of his work of grace.
You are listening to Grace Alone Radio Network, streaming Bible teaching from a primitive Baptist perspective, around the clock and around the world.